we made these bronze meat cleavers and this one is one that came out badly in the mold so i designed the this handle system so it's suspended so so it rings out you can actually bow them so uh, needs a bit more rosin on the bow but you can you can also ping them as well The idea was always to, you know, get a tuned set of these and then make compositions that are somewhere between bell peels and gamelan and work song and, you know, have interlocking rhythms with, with a melodic peel across the stroke percussion, but with the physicality and the presence and the performance of chopping and that kind of, you know, real kind of, I want to make a giant one of these with the sword maker. So we've got a nice big bong. So, I should do that. I should do that. So back in 16th and 17th century Britain, butchers would use their meat cleavers within protests as, as, a, as a noise making instrument. And then I found myself already using my granddad's meat cleavers when I discovered all of this. And then I, I was actually already making, working with a sword maker and making these things when I discovered all of this other layer to it. That I've kind of since incorporated into into my thinking and, and uh, towards making the music around it, and and actually found an 18th century composer called Bonnell Thornton who wrote a satirical piece of chamber music called "Ode to Saint Cecilia" for British instruments. It was basically all rough instruments like and uh, uh, Jews harps and and meat cleavers. And for one of the performances, there's a record that he had meat cleavers cast in bronze which is exactly what i've done 300 years later without it even knowing that that he'd done it 300 years before me so it's got a lovely charge around it you know just by by chance of uh accidentally well you know those resonances that those repeating patterns that we suspect happen My name is Rebecca Bruton, and this is The Drop and the Turning, a new music podcast brought to you by New Works Calgary in partnership with CJSW Campus and Community Radio. I'm here today over Zoom with Nathaniel Robin Mann, who is a folk singer and composer and sound designer based in the UK. You heard him just now describing his project called Rough Music. Nathan is also a part of the band The Dead Rat Orchestra. In 2011, I saw them performing in Toronto. And what compelled me so much about their work is that they had these huge logs out and the logs were sonified somehow, either close-miked or using contact mics. And they were using these axes or meat cleavers to chop rhythmically into the logs. And while they were chopping, they were folk singing. I just loved the way they had used a hyper-traditional form, the work song, and then they had 
created this really experimental aesthetics around it that focused on enlivening this object, the log. So my name's Nathaniel Mann, and I'm a musician, composer, um, sound artist, but also a broadcaster, also a, a, a filmmaker when I need to be, you know, uh, I do a lot of my work is based around collaboration. And, and so you become a producer, you become a, uh, what it, whatever needs doing. And I consider my, my practice to be composition because it's all sound based and all focused around sound, but it often explodes out into a different direction. And so I find that a lot of the time it, it kind of struggles to fit within the formats that people may expect a composer or a musician's work to, to be found within. Something you said in there that I found really interesting is that your practice or what your practice contains struggles to fit within what most listeners might consider to be a composition practice. And I find it so interesting when musicians use this language of reciprocity to describe what it is that they do. And so the practice itself has a sort of animate life force to it. So I'm wondering if you can maybe elaborate on that and talk about a particular aspect of your work where you're feeling like it's not fitting within that container that might be more conventionally described as a composition practice. My head spun off thinking about my practice and the, and the symbiotic relationship between between music making and and the composer. It's a time when when a lot of people are kind of looking into these processes of, of like fermentation, and there's a lot of people talking. and And I'm I'm reading a book at the moment about uh, mushrooms and fungi and and uh, the microbial world that connects trees and forests and allows communication and the parallels between the networks, the computer-based networks or the social networks that humans form. And it's interesting to think about music as a kind of fungal spore or something like that, because there are many, many kind of metaphors about music, which I, I feel resonate with that. You know, there's the idea of um, of the, the folk music. Every time a folk song is, is sung or re-sung or reinterpreted, there's a chain of you're you're standing you know in front of there's a the ch a chain of people stood behind you and you're just kind of a you're one step forward in that in that folk song's journey it's something greater than than the the singer in the moment and i think that that maybe it's interesting and i haven't but prompted by your question it's interesting to think about the you know compositional practice or my own museum making in in those in those terms and in a kind of a larger scale term. I mean, it's something uh, I knew uh, you were going to ask me, um, uh, what did I pay most attention to today? I saw that on your on your notes. And I was I kind of, to be honest, I spent most of the day paying attention to that question. And then thinking, and thinking about my what, what am I really paying attention to? And I think a lot of it was a series of uh, long term so I actually went to back, I went to a little woodland um, just just to clear my head before speaking to you that I'd been to last year, just to check in on some mushrooms to see if they were in the same or similar spot as they were last year, you know, with no 
other ulterior motive or intention behind that. And I guess that really is paying attention. And I think the, the kind of, you know, the zooming out and the longer time frames and the, the wider networks, you know, to consider my practice within, within those kind of scopes. It's, it's probably, yeah, that may, maybe that's what I'll do for the rest of the coronavirus pandemic. That, that's what I'll, I'll be up to. So something I've been noticing during the pandemic is that with a lot of people, they're experiencing a kind of dissolution of the external structures that normally give shape to their lives. And there also seems to be a softer kind of approach to how people are giving shape to their daily lives. Stemming off of that, we've talked about these micro-relationships or what is the grain of attention that is leading you through each day. I'm interested in the looking outside of yourself. What work are you finding is feeding you? What work do you feel closest to or most inspired by these days? Um, I'm, I mean, I think it's obviously connected to the things I, I spoke about before and the things you've been speaking about as well, um, in terms of a general, I, I kind of, I wouldn't say consensus, but, a a seam of people, uh, reassessing, reappraising their, their own, um, lives and kind of, um, recontemplating their connections to the natural world. So I've been enjoying a lot spending time with um, a new uh, body of work, uh, um, an album by a British folk singer called Sam Lee. So Sam's, uh, I've worked with Sam and he, you know, he's an old friend of mine and, and he's always been a wonderful interpreter of, of folk songs from the British Isles. This album is different, it feels to me. And, um, you know, so Sam's not just a folk singer. He's somebody who gets out there. He, you know, if you walk with him through a woodland, he, he can name everything. You know, he, he, he spent his childhood at, out, in, out in nature. And, and he's, a, he's a real vessel, a conduit through which there's something about this album that, that, that just makes me believe in these deeper connections and in the possibility of another way of living. That for me, it's a really hopeful, it's like you, I approach it like a codex, like, you know, there are things like this huge old book of symbols and signs. And what he's done is he's, he's taken bits and bobs of old songs and, and he's infused them with, with the things that, that he's learned from today. Um, you know, there's, there's little tiny nods to, to pop culture and, um, you know, it's kind of everything seamlessly re-blended together and um there are things that i recognize in it and there are things that that i feel like i'll learn from things that i feel that are new things that are probably he's probably probably not really sure what he's got that intangible sense of something where words just coalesce and meanings um you know appear within the songs and i think i think um it's the best work that he's done and um I'm, I'm just enjoying spending time with it because as I say right now it makes me feel uh, it's it's a hopeful thing yeah when I was preparing for this interview and in the earlier conversation we had last week 
I had the thought that I mainly wanted to interview you about your practice as a sound artist and composer, which I interpret as being very interdisciplinary and multi-species, and interdisciplinary not just in terms of different art forms, but also the ways that you engage people with different life paths and vocations, and how you bring these disparate ideas and people and places together. But already in this conversation, you've brought up the immediacy of folk singing for you. You shared this idea of a folk song having all these other bodies stacked behind it, and you're just carrying it in that link. And then now you've just shared that this new Sam Lee album for you is presenting a kind of hopefulness of another possibility of living. And so I'm curious, what connections do you feel there are between your practice as a folk singer, performer, and these other kinds of projects where you're creating a very broad container? Um, I, I, I enjoy this question because uh, I feel like I, I feel like everything I do is, is folk singing in a way. It's, it's and basically what I really get off on, what, what excites me is, is, where, is where things start to break down and get messy and where one thing bleeds into the other. And when you think that this is a body of work and, or, or this is a body of tradition that's very pure. And the reality is nothing is pure and nothing, everything is, is cross-pollinated and and the very idea of 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 the folk traditions or the oral traditions you know you start scratching it and below the surface you'll very quickly find you know this an absolute interconnection of, of lots of different influences of lots of different things coming together um the, the whole idea of, you know, the most that most people have of a folk singer with a guitar you know it's it's no older than what are we now it's in 2020 it's no older than like 60 70 years prior to that you gen generally had instrumental folk and sung folk and then you know the guitars came along influenced by rock and roll and you started to get singers like martin carthy coming along with with his guitar and doing arrangements for vo voice and guitar at the same time that didn't exist in the traditions before that then you get the you know the watersons who um again martin carthy was involved in the great British, you know, Yorkshire folk singing family. And then you find out that Norma Waterson spent years living in the Bahamas. Um, and you listen to some of the Bahamanian gospel singers, uh, like the Joseph, Joseph Spence and the Pinder family. And you can hear that in the, in the Waterson singing. You know, you can hear these other influences, which if you if you didn't know that, that these uh, traditions had overlapped and touched, you'd have no idea. But once you've kind of you take a step back, they're infused and um, we're so susceptible to the immediacy of an idea and to and to the the idea of something being a tradition or being, you know, 
of a, of a lineage is very seductive for some reason and i really enjoy when it starts to come apart and uh and so my projects are i feel like just an extension of that they're they're that excitability that idea of oh actually this thing is linked to that and that linked to that and and the best way to to explore these things is through conversation is through collaboration and it's and it breaks down the the sense of a single artistic voice and it breaks down the idea of a, a pure tradition and it becomes it things bleed back into community and bleed back into the social and that's where that's what music is really you know should be doing and and that's where for me it's best there's a, a massive overlap in my opinion between my you know the, the folk music and, and the folk songs and and my practice as a whole and how i bring in lots of different elements and um i feel like it's just for me it's completely coherent and um, there's no kind of there's there's no uh disconnect at all uh, between between the two kinds of practices so could you then maybe give me an example of how your what you've spoken about just now of your practice as a folk singer actually containing all of these things so and over the last few years one of the other kind of new strands to my practice has been actually at making radio shows um, and collaborate collaborating very closely with a producer at the bbc called sarah jane hall who's got the most incredible ears and ability to um turn sound into narrative and we've been working closely to basically draw out some of the projects and some you know because a single project can have so many references built in and so much research and so many connections that to try and reduce it down to to a song you know you're you're basically fitting it into it into into the wrong shaped hole and so for me part of my compositional practice has become uh, making these these radio shows and so an example of how um, we've used the radio show f f uh, format to kind of draw out and and and, and unravel and explore and question some of these kind of folkloric traditions and the overlaps was in a show that I made a couple of years ago called uh, Container Ship Karaoke and it all started off it started off because I heard and uh, it's now now I can't tell you because the the trail has gone dry. It only exists in my memory, really. But I heard about a story that it's somewhere in the north of Norway, there are dry docks where container ships are traveling around the world, you know, delivering goods where when they need repairing, they go up to these dry docks and but they need a skeleton crew on there while the, while they're taken out of the water. And the maintenance work is going on, but they need to have a you know a small crew just to keep the thing ticking over. And I heard that because you had a lot of sailors up there with nothing to do because they're not actually sailing, they're just you know got a bare bare amount of, uh, of of the workload. There was a lot of drinking going on, and there were huge fights. And that the the companies who were managing this dock inst uh, had an idea to to instigate karaoke com as a competitive sport. And it took off, and it was so successful that the the container the the seven seas of container, of container ships uh, crisscrossing the world are filled with people rehearsing for the next big karaoke battle that they were going to come across. And this idea was so compelling to me that um, I think it was probably about fifteen years later when I had the opportunity to make radio shows. You know, that's an idea that I pitched forward.
And then when it got accepted as a proposal, I had to go back digging and try and remember who told me that story. And I do remember who told me that story and they remember who told him that story. But then people start saying, oh, I've never heard of that story. It wasn't me. The trail went dry. So we had to kind of rebuild all the connections. It took months and I think it took over a year to get access to a container ship. We didn't ever find this this mystical fjord in the north of Norway with the with the dry docks that you know that I was imagining, but what we did find is that it's true that on on container ships there is a big culture of karaoke, but it's actually is driven mainly by the Filipino um, community of sailors, and so we went on to a uh, a container ship. Um, in Gdansk in Poland and we uh, we spent time with the captain and crew interviewing but also listening to the sounds of the container ships and basically started to draw out this this hypothesis this kind of this idea that that I had an inkling that somehow the container ships had taken the uh, I mean the karaoke on the container ships had somehow taken the place of the of the almost mythical now sea shanty you know which only happens by you know in shanty singing contests down in little uh, coastal village towns once a year you know or they never happen on on boats or as work songs anymore as far as as far as i can tell but what you do have are these karaoke competitions and so I interviewed some old sailors who are shanty singers, um, spent time talking to my dad, who's a, who's a, a folklore enthusiast and, and also is very interested in the kind of maritime world and, and wove together all of these strands and ended up duetting um, Rod Stewart with two Filipino sailors uh, on, on a karaoke machine, you know, in that in the throbbing heart of the, of a of a huge uh, container ship, which is carrying over twenty thousand containers that they're going to be, you know, carrying all across the world. And I think that's quite a good example of how the folklore. What, so what I found is a lot of the sea shanties, you know, are talking about um, lost love and going away and um, traveling and. And the same songs that the sailors that I met at least were singing had exactly the same motifs and, and fulfilled the same emotive necessity as I would argue that some of these shanty songs, the love songs going far away over the sea, all of the, all of the folk motifs that we, that we know so well. So it's kind of, it's gone down and it's bubbled up elsewhere and it's come out. But I would, I, I consider it, a, again, it's a coherent line it's uninterrupted culture in a way even though it's kind of it's dispersed and it's it's um coalesced in a, in a completely different way mediated by by a you know a flat screen tv with a with a with some kind of computer program full of full of songs and the technology's got in the way and now it's sung against the throbbing of the engine but something of the essence remains yeah so that that you know the the myceum spores again um, just kind of driving, make, making their own pathway through through the, the complex human world. I mean, actually this morning I was just thinking, I really have to start singing when I do my concerts. I have to, because part of it is also collecting stories and telling stories as part of the folk tradition as well. The best folk singers, are, you know, they talk as much as they sing pretty much. And I, and I just, I remember this morning I, I thought, I've got to start singing John Denver on a jet plane, even though it's the kind of most typical cover version that you can do. 
the reason that I will do it is because it, it was introduced to my body of work by the, these um, by these two Philip. Um, what was that? What were their names? Um, Ariel and I think it was Valiente, as as one of their favourite emblematic karaoke songs. And now for me, it, it carries. It's got this whole another another body of connections. If I, you know, if I and I will, I'll start to perform that song because it it carries with it. You know, it's attracted all these all this other meaning and all this um, the body of stories and and connections that that I can share out. And when when I sing it, it will. Uh, I'm looking forward to to learning it. I'd, I'd never I'd never sung it before that moment, and I haven't sung it since. But uh, this morning thinking about other things it, it, I realized it's the right thing to do I need to be singing on a jet plane leave, leaving on a jet plane I find that fascinating and I know for me that song leaving on a jet plane it's one of those songs that I don't want to want it I think with musicians who maybe fall in a certain category or lineage or practice we can sometimes find ourselves in a sort of rigidity or aesthetic stuckness, which I think has a purpose. I think when the desire for what we want to hear coalesces gradually into what it is that we produce, then that can create a very specific and particular sense of aesthetics. But then I think there's a danger in that, that we would then close ourselves off from these other possibilities of ways of finding meaning within music. For example, the day when you bust out leaving on a jet plane and you find that it's meaningful for yourself and for the people that you're sharing it with. So there was a question that showed up for me while you were talking about this containership karaoke. And I was very much reminded of this issue within ethnomusicology and within folklore academic culture of the impulse to collect. And I think it shows up with folk singers as well. There's this idea that you will go out and collect songs as these whole objects that then you hold within your collection and within what you perform. And of course, this is coming from this impulse to collect. It's coming from a history of imperialism and colonialism and the idea of going out and exploring a foreign land and then bringing back your treasures. And that is part of how you show your status of possession of having discovered that place or been in that place. And this has already, this isn't a new idea. This has been criticized and problematized quite a bit for many years now. So something that I'm hearing as you talk to me about your work is you are a folk singer and on one level you do value collections are going out to learn about what songs are out there and how you can add them to your own body of work and make them your own. But then, rather than simply engaging with the song as an object, you're able to see that that song is a process in time and it's 
sort of this crux of a series of relationships. And you're understanding that each time you perform it, it is transformed. So then we're going back to this sort of ecological idea of of something changing simply by you being there. As somebody who sings traditional songs, especially in the last kind of six, seven, eight years, we we have a responsibility to transform these songs. You know, they're beautiful things that, I mean, they've never been static things. We all know that by now, right? We all know that, you know, every singer changes them a little bit. But they are also carriages for certain ideas and certain value systems that really don't have a place in in the contemporary world. So, you know, folk song is laced with misogyny. There's so much rape in it. We have a responsibility to, I feel a responsibility when I'm singing them, to either address it and use it as a, as a way of talking about these issues or to transform it. And there, there are many different, there is many different ways of, of, of transforming them as there are of, uh, as songs to sing. So, you know, there's no particular, I'm not saying that you have to do this or have to do that. But I, I think, yeah, we're in a moment where, where these things demand to be, in my opinion, they demand to be transformed. So one of the themes we've been circulating around has been this question of what is the responsibility of the creator or the performer to the material that they're presenting. And I'd like to use that as a transition into talking about your recent work with the Wauja community in Brazil. I'm very interested in some of the challenges you've faced in working with that community and individuals within that community of working to not replicate these older colonial constructs that I think are very easy to find yourself in a power relationship that can be injurious to the people that you're working with. So... I'd like it if you could just tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing over the past couple of years with the Wauja. Yeah, so I think it was 2017, something like that. I, I um, saw a, a call from the British Council in collaboration with the, the Performance Rights Society Foundation, uh, which is uh, based in the UK, where they have... Um, a long-running um, program of international residencies, uh, most of which have been in China, but this was the first year they were setting them up in Brazil. They had several different partners in Brazil, and one of the host communities was uh, the the Welsh community. Basically, the the premise of this particular residency was for a British composer to travel out to Brazil spend a month living with the community and then write a piece of music for an orchestra to be performed by a basically a, a white Brazilian orchestra in a city. And so that was the format of the uh, of the call. 
And for me, you know, there's something inherently kind of colonial extraction, like send. Oh, it's just, I mean, it's awful. It's kind of amazing when it was written down on paper that nobody went, hang on, this is actually not that great, is it? So we'll send a white British composer and we, and basically they will write about their own experience and then perform it to a, a rich classical music, so westernised in some respects audience. And it's just kind of completely extracting and, you know, go, go there and, and instead of resource extraction, kind of cultural experience extraction. And so I applied for it in order to try and kind of make sure that didn't happen to the point where in the in the interview, when I had the interview, um, the director of the orchestra actually suggested he's a he's a really nice guy. And I think he's doing a lot of great stuff. But um, in this particular instance, he missed he, he, it was a misstep. He said, you know, I'm sure it's not representative of his entire character, but he said, um, but what about if you went to went to the community and you you bought you brought back with you um, all of the instruments they play and we give them to the orchestra and the orchestra can perform with them. And I said to him, look, please, whatever you do, if you pick me or not, don't do that. You know that I mean, that literally is just going and, you know, that's that's not cultural appropriation. That's I don't know. That's cultural uh ransacking and so despite me being quite openly critical in the interview i got the position um my basic default idea was to go out there and facilitate the community to write a piece of music for the orchestra um if that was of interest to them um but hoping that anything else might happen um that was more led by the community the wowsha is a village in the shingu region which is in mato grosso smack bang in the middle of brazil you can't get further from the coast on either side the shingu river is a tributary of the amazon so um, if you follow it north it will it will hook up into the amazon basin and the shingu territory is the first designated protected indigenous territory um, in brazil and there are over 30 communities um, of uh, living in that area um, with um, lot, each one with their, their own language and their, their, their own kind of intersecting but but distinct cultures and the to get there you know I had to fly out to Rio and then another internal flight to the capital Brasilia and then um, I think it's 15 hours on a coach then three hours on the back of a four by four through industrial soybeans, the scale of which I'd never, you know, you, I'm in England, everything's tiny. Uh, you get to, you get to the Americas, everything's huge anyway, but the, the scale of the soybean plantations, you know, you're dr driving through one field and it can take 40 minutes. You know, that's unthinkable in, in, in Britain, uh, three hours driving through these, um, plantations, which surrounds the Shingu territory. And then get dropped off at a bend in the river and another six and a half hours down down the river with a, on, on a little kind of metal skiff with an outboard motor and then another few hours on, on a tractor. So by the time you get to the community, you're quite far away from anywhere. And um, then I was welcomed into the community and introduced to Akari Wilder. And he is the principal singer um, and one of the historians and village elders. And basically, I spent the month living with Akari and his family. Um, my my hammock was in his home, hung next to his hammock. And um, the community had decided before I'd arrived that he would look after me and that we would work together, whatever that meant. 
so having met Akari, we we started to share songs and talk about our own music and and he told me about his father so Akari's father was also a musician he was a healer a parje and but he died when Akari was just 14. like many of the young welsher today the youngsters are very kind of outward looking they're not as interested in the traditional culture and Akari when he was a kid was the same he hadn't learned any of the songs and it wasn't until he was 27 that he decided that he also wanted to f uh, follow his father's path and become a singer and it was only by because a uh, anthropologist called Emmy Island had been in the community um, whilst his father was alive and recorded his father's songs that Akari was able to learn the songs that that um, that his father sung and so Akari said to me that it was his dream that somebody would come and record his versions of the songs you know his songs and his repertoire in case this happened again and so I said well I've got the stuff let's do it like, you know that's it. and so that's how we spent my month there recording uh, working together um, you know um, to to think about how to record um, these songs and which songs he wanted to record and how how to um, best to um, archive them and preserve them and make them accessible to future members of the community and eventually and Akari wanted to produce a CD so we did that as well which you know requires a different format of the songs because many of them are kind of long format songs of 20 or 40 minutes and um, and a CD, obviously, if you do that, you only get a song and a half on on your CD. But um, so that's that's the the backstory of how I ended up collaborating very closely with Akari, but also with other filmmakers um, and historians and activists from the community. And so, it, to me, it was always a case of I'm not going to be kind of a flash in the pan, go in and come out again. As long as the community wanted it to be, I wanted my commitment to them to be uh, long term as appropriate. And um, it, yeah, it's so under coronavirus and now more recently in the last two weeks, um, the, the fires in the uh, across Brazil in the Amazon and now um, for the first time um, uncontrolled fires in the Shingu region. You know, so I've been helping fundraise and helping um, working with volunteers and NGOs and activists and um, and various um, indigenous activists and communities within the Shingu region um, to to help support the Welsh community and the the wider community around. So sorry, it's a bit of a bit of a long backstory, but I find that you know I need to give all this context to, to just to ensure that you know the story is properly told. When you were telling the story about the karaoke competition, there was this real focus on the exchange taking place. You've talked about how the meanings and implications of a song changed based on the different people who have carried that song. So in your work with Akari, I'm really interested in this idea of you being both a folk singer and a recordist, and you've talked about how you consider yourself a folk singer in all that you do. And here we have this relationship you're building with Akari, 
there's a lot of mutual exchange as your mutuality in your musicianship as singers. And then in a way, you're also a folk singer in your work as a documentarian. So one of the themes running since we started this conversation is both your responsibility as somebody who holds and exchanges songs, but then also how a something changes by you being there or you interacting with it. And so I'm just curious if you have thoughts on this and if you can speak to maybe the ways the songs in this lineage that you're recording might be changed by you being there and by this exchange taking place. Yeah, um, I think, you know, the the kind of colonial legacy of recording, because I think, you know, it, it comes from the Victorian collecting and the idea that these things must be saved from what or for who and you know i don't you know and, and all of these kind of problematic inbuilt values um that go on that are embedded within the act and within the technology and within the, within the archive itself or can be i didn't I, I think you you know you have to be wary of them but it they're there but it doesn't cancel out the potential usefulness of these things for you know done in a in a considered way um so the reason why it was important for me to tell you the whole story of akari and where you know his father being a singer and his is because i didn't get i had the recording stuff with me because it's part of my practice to just make recordings of myself and of, of, of you know field recordings but i didn't go there thinking i'm going to record an album of the music from this community and the only reason that that project was that is that's actually what he wanted. It's, it's been his dream for years that to have somebody. Um, so Akari wanted his music recorded, and so that's why we did it. And he he does it. He's doing it because he, as I explained, because because he himself saw the benefit of being able to learn from his deceased father's songs, and because he wants to leave it behind for future generations. Because he's aware that these things, you know, he, he himself was uh, was somebody who. Who, who kind of shunned the, the traditions. I mean, I'm talking about him quite a lot now, um, but it's another one of those things that I really, I try not to go out and do interviews about Akari, you know, or about, you know, I try and talk about it always. Uh, whenever, if I ever get an invitation to talk about that project, I, or, um, I try and extend that specific invitation to Akari to make sure he's paid for that to make sure he has the agency to talk about his own position so you know i have a couple of things that you know that, that i share about his own story because it's important to to give that context but and so in terms of my presence and my being there the transforming the material um yes but it would have transformed it a lot more had i gone there like old style and from ethnomusicologist and anthropologist um d did and and kind of you know and captured it uh, that's another word for recording you use the word take but you know you you capture this music 
you know, the agency is different. The power balance is different because Zachary wanted to record it himself. He made decisions about how to record it um, because normally a lot of these songs, most of the time these songs would be recorded um, with the entire village or, or sec segments of the village dancing, uh, providing uh, musical percussion around him. But he made a decision to, um, to preserve the clarity of his vocal performance because that's the basically these are these are almost like tutorials you know these are this this isn't how the music is is performed in situ this is him getting nice and close to the microphone and letting the f future vet generations hear his voice and and there's another layer which is not even about the recording it's about you know, Akari wants to make these recordings. He wants to travel and perform his music because he knows in doing so, the younger generations are going to go, hang on a minute. Uh, old Akari, he's getting to go to Europe and, you know, because he's singing the old songs. Maybe we, maybe we can do the same if we pick up these, you know, these traditions. Because he's, you know, there's a lot of romanticism about the ideas of, again, going back to, you know, picking apart these ideas of traditions. And, you know, he's from a... a um a family of singers but it's it's it wouldn't be right to assume that it was a purely kind of um spiritual or or you know even cultural calling to to follow in his father's footsteps he, you know he it's a good position within the village he gets paid well for singing he get you know it's there are practical reasons for doing it as well and so and I don't think those things diminish or pollute or, you know, they're just, you know, they just add to the, the complexity. And it's, it's complexity is what I'm all about. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's what fascinates me. So these songs and the way we recorded them, yeah, they're completely transformed in many ways. Um, one of the things that I personally enjoy about the, the recordings and I felt reflected the balance and the conversation that was going on is, is when when Akari sings in front of you, all of the ground in in, in the uh, in the village is this red earth, this red dusty earth, and um, and he's stamping his foot, and he's he's a big man, and he's stamping his foot, and the, and those vibrations go down through this the earth and up through your own legs, and you can feel it, and it's you know it's a physical embodied thing listening to him sing, and. And uh, I immediately thought, how am I going to capture that? You know, because that's that is an, you know, as somebody listening to it, uh, that's is something I think about a lot. You know, how do you capture that physically being in the room, or you know, how do you encode it somehow into the into the um, into the experience of listening to it? And so I actually took a hydrophone and I buried it beneath the floor. So I ha I had various microphones set up and buried it um, beneath the floor so that every time he stamped it got that you know that sub bass whoomp and so i had that kind of in the back pocket thinking that my instincts telling me to do you know this is what it needs in order to capture it and then we when we sat down because Zachary oversaw the editing of the of the songs he oversaw the you know <laughs> he, he, you know he's very savvy guy he was also like oh that bit's wrong you can edit that out right you know just uh, he'd never done any recording before but he had a very you know he knew that with the technology we could you know get rid of certain bits of him kind of breathing badly or you know there's some editing going, going on in it it's not a purist recording by any by by any stretch and um and he oversaw all of that and so 
um, early on in the first day or so uh, of the recording and uh, he was listening to it on headphones and I said what do you think do you think it sounds okay and he looked me in the face and he said yeah it sounds okay but it's missing this and he touched his chest it, my heart just swelled it was a beautiful moment but on the one hand because I felt like very quickly we'd reached a point where he could be critical of me which I, f I felt and feel like it that shows you know he's not deferring to the white guy with the technology to you know he's coming in to we're, we're doing this together it's a collaboration and there's there's mutual you know, there's mutual respect here and you know the fact that he could be critical of me was was brilliant and then back that up with the fact that in the back pocket I had these recordings which uh, and I said okay wait a second wait a second and so I, you know go to the mix and I said what do you think now and I'm mixing this recording of the hydrophone that's picking up his foot banging through the ground and I just pop that into the mix in his headphones and he looks up and he's like yeah that's it that's what that's what it's missing that's good you know and it, nothing more was said about it that's it but for the me that moment was a a beautiful moment which was just a grounding in that this is a this is an exchange there's balance in this relationship Nathan thank you so much for going into the level of depth and detail that you have gone into in describing your experiences as well as your ongoing work that you continue to do with the Wauja community and so I had mapped out this sort of complex, heady question about systems of privilege and and how you hold those or don't hold them and how that impacts your work as well as your career and public life. But getting to the end of this interview and assessing how it's felt to talk to you about some of these things, I feel it's more appropriate in this setting to ask a question about place. And so what I'm wondering for you, of course you can integrate these more systemic questions into that if you wish, but I'm interested from a more immediate place or heart-based response, is there a place in the world, a place you've been to, visited, come from, that you feel in all of the ways that different relationships, the land base it's on, the people who live there, the animals moving through it, the economic history of it, is there a place that you feel connected to and that impacts your work and and inspires you? There is a place that fulfills all of those things. It's the place where, um, so that this place is, is where my parents live. It's not where I grew up. They moved there probably five or six years after I left home. Um, it's it's not so far away from where where I grew up. It's about an hour away, but it's very different because it's it's kind of in the countryside, and I grew up in a town. And so they moved out to this place, and um, obviously they live there. So my parents are living there. So that's that's grounding in in and of itself. But um, it actually um, the place connects to the story I told about the containership karaoke and the conversations with my father because where they live it's like this 
it's a it's a peninsula between two rivers so where so there's actually three peninsulas all, all together on the coastline uh, with two rivers um, intersecting um, and and they live on the kind of the the middle one and then on the on the peninsula um, to the north uh, is is Felixstowe Harbour which is um, one of the biggest container port docks in the country and then on the on the on the south um peninsula is harridge harbour which uh, used to be a big ferry port and is just again it actually has a sea shanty festival and there's a little ferry which bounces back and forth between those those three points and what i love about where they live and the way it resonates with with my music is a uh, again it's such a you get to where my parents live and it's down this very long lane farm lane with with nothing else around and then there's just this little clump of of houses of what used to be a a village so there's there used to be a school there used to be a pub and now there it's just about 12 houses and a church and um and some war memorials and then there's some vineyards which have popped up there in the last 20 years or so and then and and just f farmland and and then this lovely salt water estuaries that, that you know from from the tidal rivers and so it's got these lovely undulating hills and it's beautiful and you know very bucolic and and pure countryside and agriculture i mean agriculture and um, you know cows in the fields and there's an, there's allotments and things but at the same time on the horizon you've got the, the container ships, these huge cranes, which I always imagine to be like dinosaurs on the horizon, these silhouettes of great beasts. And the, depending on the wind, you know, the continual beeping of, of, the, of the little uh, forklift trucks moving around, the, the beep, 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 which becomes like this weird, swirling, minimalist composition of just, of just three notes, but just kind of going in and out of phase across the winds as, as they're carried across the, the harbour. The, the colossal banging and scraping of, of the containers going down that, you know, just echoes across, across the way. And then, um, you know, to come day or night, they, they go in 24 hours a day. Yeah, I was there. I was there just last week and took my dog out, you know, about midnight and you just stand and watch and listen. And it's this confluence of of uh, of everything being there. You know, you've got the rural and the bucolic, but then you've got just all of these huge boxes of crap that are coming in from from all over the world that are going to go into the you know, it just seems to be it seems to be like the focal point of the world for me it seems like the you know uh, it encapsulates everything and strangely so there's this church that you know nobody goes to anymore like we we sometimes go on on christmas eve they do a carol service and then the vicar's there and he he's, even he says like oh i wish my wife and daughter had come you know, he can't even get his own wife and daughters to come to the service on Christmas Eve. Like, what hope has he got for congregation? Um, and and the church itself is is um, I think it's I think it's been there a long time, and there are bits of it that are you know hundreds of years old. Um, but over the years, it just seems to have been patched up by well-meaning but but like aesthetically <laughs> clueless workmen. So you've got. Do you know what pebble dashes? 
I don't know what pebble dash is. So pebble dash is a very common uh, way of sealing um, homes in the UK, and it's very cheap and it's very quick, and it's kind of associated with, with yeah, with with, with cheap, quick housing. You know, um, a lot of um, after the war where there were destruction pebble dash houses or, or a way of in, you know of, of making a house an old brick house kind of giving it, it it not anymore but it used to be a popular way so basically it's a mixture of cement and pebbles and you just get a big tube of the stuff and you and you just cover the entire house with this cement and pebbles and um and it's got a very loaded look here in the uk and so part of this church is covered covered in pebble dash other bits it's got double glazing which is you know plastic windows that from a house you know the, they've they've kind of somebody's come along and restored a bit with that you know and then bits you know some of it's just red brick you know your kind of standard house brick and it's just a patchwork and i love it because it shows this i mean i there's no history of, you know, nobody's written down like, oh, Dave did the Pebble Dash in 1976 or something. Not as far as I've seen. But there's, there's, a, there's a biography written out across the surface of this church, which, which somehow chimes with the, with the, 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 the kind of incompatible ideas of with the seemingly incompatible ideas of this of this uh, you know idealistic landscape and then the the soundscape it has of this, of this clanking and clanging and these drones of industry and then and the, just just the awareness of all the crap that's coming in from that's going to go into shops all the things we rely on all the things we buy all the things that will eventually just turn to rubbish and be thrown away it seems to me that it's yeah it just feels like it's a distillation there of of um of so much of 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 the world and it feel it feels like all of my folk processes and the way i draw things in and out uh, you know it's all there You've been listening to The Drop and the Turning, a new podcast brought to you by New Works Calgary in partnership with CJSW Campus and Community Radio. The Drop and the Turning was produced at Mokinstis, where the Bow and Elbow Rivers converge, within Treaty 7 territory. Treaty 7 encompasses the traditional territory and oral practices of the Blackfoot Confederacy, Siksika, Kainai, Pikani, as well as the Stony Nakoda and Sutina nations. I acknowledge this territory is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3, within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. I seek to liberate truth and work in solidarity toward decolonization and equal nationhood of all indigenous peoples. The music you heard today was music by me, your host, Rebecca Bruton. <laughs>